Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Hillary. And this is the Probably Not Lupus podcast. Season two, we are back to discuss more medical mysteries and rare, strange, or unusual case studies. These are based on mostly true stories collected from our friends, medical history, journals, and fellow doctors. To protect privacy, names, dates, and locations may have been altered. Get ready for your medical mystery bolus. Probably Not Lupus is a show about our favorite medical mysteries. Nothing the hosts say should be taken for medical advice or opinion. We are not experts, nor are we journalists. It's just for fun. So enjoy. Today, we meet three unique cases of Bryce, Lara, and Jesse all involved in genetic testing in different capacities. Genetic testing affects not just the individual, but whole families, and is a balance between autonomy and medical ethics. Stay tuned today to hear their stories, as well as insight from a genetic counseling assistant who works with providers and patients every day. Episode 20. We really made it. Hey, girl. So glad to be here. <laughs> Happy to be here as well. This is the final episode for season two of the Probably Not Lupus podcast. Thanks to faithful weekly listeners, we see on our end that you have listened to the show as soon as it comes out on Monday mornings. And we love to be there to start off your week, whether it be on your drive, with your coffee, whatever it is. We love it. And for those of you binging all these episodes at once, we're honestly proud that we've made some binge-worthy content for you to enjoy. Yes, 20 episodes, that's binge-worthy, right? 100%. And when we started this, it really was just for fun. We had zero experience other than our morning coffee chats at school about rare, strange, and unusual case studies. I have literally learned how to record all the way down to researching the microphones that we use, edit, and produce a podcast from scratch. I've also learned how to manage a website, create promotional material for social media, write these scripts, like so many new skills have blossomed in just this little fun endeavor that we took over. But as much as I've learned and as much fun as we have had, we are ready to take a little break to refresh because this is a lot of work. So we are going to be back for season three in January of 2022. We do have the official date and I was going to release it today, but I think I'm going to make you guys check our website because I'm also hoping that you want to help us out. This is a call for interviews. If you have a rare, strange, or unusual illness or diagnosis, and you want to chat with us, please send us an email or contact us through our website, probablynotlupus.com. But if this is too much for you, you can also just subscribe to us wherever you listen to your episodes and maybe even leave a five-star rating and review. We do this all out of our own pockets, so it might be nice if we could get a little sponsor. So if you're truly a fan of the show and you want to help us out, please leave us a rating and review so that when we come back for season three, maybe we can step up our production quality once again. Yes, for sure. I am still waiting for someone, anyone to sponsor us. I think I said that in episode one and I haven't given up. And I also just want to thank 
the best co-host in the world because oh. this has been so fun to do it with you and we've had such a good time and I'll save the sap stuff for the end but let's get into what we're talking about today can't wait which is medical genetics genetic testing genetic counseling let's talk about it so today we're gonna bring an interesting discussion on genetic testing its applications what can be the benefits of it and also considerations under ethical critique Yes, genetics. What a rapidly growing field. And there is so much new tech supporting it and money supporting that research too. Absolutely. I'm sure you can say this too, but even through our time in school, we firsthand witnessed new developments in both genetic testing and genomics. So genetic testing, just to define it for you, is a medical evaluation that identifies changes in genes, chromosomes, or proteins that can confirm or rule out certain conditions or a person's chance of developing or passing on a genetic disorder. So this is more of a clinical use. And genomics, which is also super interesting, is a field of biology that focuses on structure, function, evolution, mapping, and editing of genomes or the organism's complete set of DNA. So first of all, we're going to discuss the ethics and decision-making surrounding genetic testing. We're going to bring you three small cases and finish off with an amazing interview with another great guest, Brittany, who works in the field of medical genetic testing as a genetic counseling assistant or GCA. Great. I can't wait. Let's get into some background. Yeah. So like we kind of mentioned earlier, advances in genetics are rapidly expanding the lists of diseases and conditions that genetic testing is available for. And some of these conditions are trivial, like whether earwax is wet or dry, which really doesn't have much clinical application, but there's a test for it apparently. And others are potentially life-threatening, but treatable, like breast cancer caused by a mutation in the gene BRCA1. Still, unfortunately, others are fatal and have no cure, such as Huntington's disease. So now the decision to pursue or not pursue genetic testing is very personal and something that people shouldn't take lightly. Those that seek out genetic testing have many reasons behind it. These include decisions based on reproduction, plans to initiate preventative medical screening and potential treatments, and peace of mind. Because for some people, uncertainty can be more disruptive than knowing. Mm. So those that intentionally avoid genetic testing also have very valid reasons. Uh, one of the most commonly given reasons is that a potential disease that could happen is so psychologically damaging that it will actually negatively impact their quality of life. So they're kind of just waiting for symptoms to occur. They're waiting for this disease to hit them and mm. they're not going to enjoy their life. Sometimes mm. it makes people very depressed and potentially even suicidal. So, right. okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about medical ethics. Cause I think that's really important when we discuss genetics and the first principle of biomedical ethics is respect for autonomy. So this is someone's individual rights. And as providers, we need to always respect what they choose once they've gone through informed consent. However, when genetic testing involved, it's not just an individual, it's a family affair. So this doesn't just affect an individual because you share genes with your family, you get them from your parents. So in some cases, one patient's right to know may be in direct conflict with 
a family member's right not to know. Right. And then when someone gets this information, how do they choose what to share and what not to share? Right. Yeah. Good point. So physicians are kind of stuck in the middle of this disagreement and Mm. whose rights are supreme here. So when a condition is treatable, this would seem to favor the right to know. However, when the condition is not treatable, the best course of action really isn't known. Right. I can see how some of these decisions are difficult for both the medical provider and the patient and that there aren't always clear answers. And that's why we wanted to have this discussion about ethics before we got into the cases today. Exactly. So we have three mini cases for you. The first one we're going to talk about is Bryce. He is a healthy 20 year old male. However, he has a family history of ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. ALS, as some of you might know, is a progressive neurodegenerative disease that affects our motor neurons or the nerve cells that are responsible for movement. So when someone has this, early signs include muscle weakness, which then progresses to complete loss of muscle function. And sadly, in the end stages, people lose their ability to speak, to swallow, and then breathe, which leads to death, sadly. Most cases of ALS are sporadic, meaning they occur with no family history. However, between five and 10% of cases are hereditary or familial with an autosomal dominant inheritance pattern. Meaning that if even one parent is affected, the offspring will likely be affected. Exactly. Life expectancy for newly diagnosed individuals is only two to five years because there's no cure. So going back to Bryce, he lost his maternal grandmother, as well as two uncles and one aunt on his mother's side, all to ALS. Based on that autosomal dominant inheritance pattern, like you said, Hillary, Bryce's mother, who is 45 years old, has a 50% chance of carrying one of the mutations that causes ALS. Therefore, Bryce then has a 25% risk of ALS. So Bryce wants to pursue genetic testing to find out if he carries this mutant gene. He's currently in college, but he says he plans to drop out and travel the world if he learns that this fatal disease kind of lurks in his future at some point. His mother, Joan, does not want to know if she carries the mutation. She helped care for her mother and her siblings through all of their illnesses, and she knows firsthand the horror of dying from ALS, and she doesn't want to know if that's in her future. The information that Bryce seeks is precisely the information that his mother is attempting to avoid. So whose wishes do you respect here? Right. That's a good example of the ethics we were just speaking about. Yeah. So second mini case here is of Lara. She is a 43-year-old female. And this actually isn't specifically her, But her parents lost two children to a disease called Tay-Sachs before she was born. The first child passed away at two years old and the second at 18 months. So it's also important to know that this particular case, although was recently discussed, actually happened back in the 1960s when there was little support or awareness about genetic conditions. So fortunately, Lara's parents were alerted by a doctor that they could actually do testing before birth to see if the next child also had this condition. Lara states that because of her parents' experience, testing has always been at the forefront of her mind. So Lara quotes, I went when I was 18. 
when I found out I was a carrier, I was fine. It just meant I had the information that I needed, unquote. She adds that it would have never stopped her getting together with her husband. However, if he had been a carrier too, it just would have meant that they were aware of the risks and could test for them early in pregnancy. So I think that's a really good case to show sort of the prenatal testing and what can be done to kind of figure out what's going to happen to your future baby. Right. And I think the broader implication here, what we're talking about, I suppose, is if you know that your child is going to have a illness that's going to result in them dying at a very young age, do you want to carry that pregnancy to full term? Exactly. Another ethical question too. Right. The last case we're going to talk about today is a little bit different. Now that we have discussed two cases based on specific conditions, so it was ALS and then Tay-Sachs disease, today we're going to talk about Jesse, who passed away at age 18, and he is the first person who is publicly identified as dying during a clinical trial for gene therapy. Now, Jesse suffered from a condition called OTCD. It's got a long, complicated name that is an X-linked genetic disease of the liver, and the symptoms include an inability to metabolize ammonia, which is normally fatal at birth. However, Jesse had a more mild form where the mutation or the altered gene only affected some of his body's cells. And this is known as a somatic mosaicism. Because of the mild form, he was able to survive on a restricted low protein diet and some medications. Now, Jesse joined a clinical trial at the University of Pennsylvania that was aimed at developing a treatment for infants with the severe form of this disease. So this trial was actually using a new gene to replace the mutated gene. And in Jesse, they tried to replace the mutated gene, but Jesse died four days later from a massive immune response that was triggered from this trial. And it led to multiple organ failure and eventually brain death. Now, it isn't as simple as the new gene didn't work and he died. There were more serious ethical concerns surrounding the study and the FDA investigated his death and the trial. And there were many serious errors made by the scientists involved. Jesse shouldn't have been in the trial in the first place. His ammonia levels at the beginning of the trial were too high. So that should have excluded him. Secondly, the university did not disclose that two patients had already experienced serious side effects. And finally, when the researchers created and got Jesse to sign the informed consent document, they also failed to disclose that monkeys who were given a similar treatment also died. And this wreaked havoc in the news with reporters calling the researchers overeager and undercautious, accusing them of taking shortcuts and disregarding rules, which were meant to protect people in their care. And in a flash, gene therapy and making these sorts of gene edits collapsed. Wow. So there are lots of considerations when thinking about genetic testing and gene therapy. Let's take a break now. And when we come back, we'll be with our guest, Brittany, who is a genetic counseling assistant and hear what she has to say about the topic. Can't wait.
Hello and welcome back. So today we would like to welcome our guest. I would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us your preferred pronouns. Thanks, Emma. My name is Brittany. I am a genetic counseling assistant at a medical genetics lab and my pronouns are she, her. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So Britt, can you start off by telling us what is genetic testing? Definitely. So genetic testing broadly can be like any sort of testing that is analyzing your genes and looking for different markers in those genes. And those different markers within those genes are what we refer to as variants. More people would be familiar with probably the term mutation. I think most of us really think of germline testing when we think of genetic testing. And what that refers to is testing for those variants, those differences in, in your genes or mutations in a way that we expect that the variant would be heritable or in the germline. Um, but there's also somatic testing, which tests, you know, for mutations or variants in somebody's tumor. Um, there's also cytogenetics testing, which tests for broader, you know, big chromosomal abnormalities, so to speak, like aneuploidies. Um, but yeah, genetic testing kind of <laughs> encompasses all of those different things. So if I'm trying to make it simple, easy bite size for our listener, we're talking about analyzing DNA right now. Is that right. correct? Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. fair to say. And so you said in your intro that you work as a genetic counseling assistant, and can you explain to me the role of a genetic counselor and what they can provide for both patients and providers? Yeah, definitely. So um, genetic counselors are healthcare providers with advanced training in medical genetics and counseling to guide and support patients seeking more information about how inherited diseases and conditions might affect them or their families and to interpret genetic test results based on that patient's um, specific personal and family history. Uh, what are some of the benefits of genetic testing? So some benefits of genetic testing um, you know, can be that that person might learn that they are either expected to in inherit a particular disorder or are at an increased risk of inheriting some sort of um, disorder. And learning that information might actually open the door to that person um, being offered certain, um, you know, screenings or preventative care um, to address that increased risk or that particular disorder. Um, so people might want to learn this information either for themselves and, you know, like I said, to open that door to certain treatment plans or um, screenings, or um, some people might want to learn for their families because learning that you carry a germline variant um, can be, you know, important information for the whole family. Um, and some people, you know, um, screen things like prenatally. So, um, for example, if somebody has like an abnormal ultrasound that they suspect there might be something genetic um, going on, um, there might be some testing options um, for that, depending on the situation. Or if somebody is, you know, has unfortunately experienced a loss or a miscarriage, um, sometimes there's certain testing that can be done um, on, on that uh, specific tissue to help, you know, help identify if anything genetic was the cause of that, um, of that loss. I can imagine that would be super helpful for expecting mothers, but could also be devastating at the same time if they do find out, um, you know, bad news or what they weren't expecting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think in the prenatal context, um, 
a lot of reason for doing this, not just in the prenatal context, but in the broader genetic counseling context as well, um, is to calculate something called a recurrence risk. So basically a recurrence risk is, you know, this awful, terrible thing has happened to you, whether that's a loss of some sort of, you know, in, such as like a, a prenatal loss miscarriage, or even like a child is born with a um, rare disease or genetic condition. So basically it's like, you know, this terrible thing has happened what are the chances that this is going to happen again? What's the likelihood that this is going to happen again? So that's, you know, especially in prenatal, um, that comes up a lot um, as, as a big reason why people decide to pursue genetic testing. Yeah, for sure. I can see knowing your odds being super influential. Definitely, definitely. And, and knowing all your options uh, exactly. as well. Would you be able to give us an example of something that is for instance, super rare and not likely to have a, what did you call it? A recurrence rate? Recurrence risk. Recurrence risk. Pardon me. So could you give us an example of a condition that would be like very rare and has a very low recurrence risk versus Mm. another one that has a very high recurrence risk? So for example, like if you have a couple that has a child who's born with a rare genetic condition, and I'm just going to pick the first one that comes to my head, cystic fibrosis, it would be really good to know are mom and dad both carriers of cystic fibrosis? So cystic fibrosis is an autosomal recessive disorder, which means that in order to be sick or what we call affected with the condition, you would need two pathogenic mutations, one on each chromosome. So typically when this happens, this happens because mom and dad are both carriers and usually don't know. And then they, for each pregnancy, there's a 25% chance that they could potentially have a child who's affected, but it's important to know that information because that's not the only possibility. So usually when a child is sick with a rare autosomal recessively inherited disorder, typically that's the situation where both mom and dad are carriers, but that's not always the situation because sometimes um, mutations can kind of arise. Like it's, it's much rarer. It's not as common, but it does happen. And we call those de novo mutations. So they're basically new mutations. So in the scenario, if you have a couple with that baby with cystic fibrosis, if mom's a carrier, but dad's not, then we can pretty much assume that the variant occurred de novo and new, which means they would have a pretty low risk of that event happening. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate that. So At what point in a patient's genetic testing journey or exploration should they seek advice from a genetic counselor? That is a good question. I love that question. So I just want to say, like, you know, my opinions are my own. I think if possible, anytime a patient is considering genetic testing or thinking about, you know, can can this testing be beneficial to me? they should seek a genetic counselor if possible. Um, And there are barriers um, to patients accessing genetic counseling and genetic testing in general, um, for sure. So I wanna acknowledge that as well. But if they can meet with a genetic counselor, ideally, you know, prior to ordering and arranging testing, I I think that is is the best for, for patients. That's a good suggestion. So before you go ahead with testing, speak to someone. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, either at, 
I would say speak to a genetics provider if, if that's accessible and if you can. Right. So Brittany, what are some considerations before seeking out genetic testing? Yeah, that's a good question. So we kind of talked about, you know, there, there are a lot of benefits and a lot of reasons why somebody might seek um, genetic counseling, either seeking it themselves or being referred by, you know, one of, one of their healthcare providers. Um, But there are other things to consider um, as well, depending on the type of genetic testing we're talking about there, there's going to be different considerations. And that's why I like to highlight that if you can meet with a genetic counselor, you know, prior to arranging the testing, that's really um, ideal because a genetic counselor is going to be, you know, or a genetics provider is going to be the best healthcare provider to walk you through all the considerations to make and all the nuances to think about before you decide to move forward with testing. Um, so like, for example, again, depending on the type of testing, but Often when somebody pursues genetic testing in a way, they're kind of potentially opening a can of worms. (laughs) And sometimes you might be surprised what you find in that can of worms. Like, so for example, a person might do, um, you know, testing for an oncology concern. Maybe they have a significant family history of like breast cancer. Um, Maybe they're affected with breast cancer themselves. So they might engage in testing to kind of learn you know, is that risk genetic in etiology? Um, And they might learn that they have a um, pathogenic variant in a totally unrelated (laughs) cancer gene. Like they might find out that they carry a variant that uh, carries an increased risk of colon cancer. Um, So, you know, sometimes the information is surprising. Sometimes we're not fully sure of the information. So there's this existence of variants of uncertain significance, which is really important, (laughs) but it's impossible to talk about genetic counseling properly without acknowledging buses um, as we call them. So a variant or a mutation can be any change in, in the gene, right? And some genes are like thousands, hundreds of thousands of base pairs long. So we don't know, like, you know, we've done like the human human genome project, like we've mapped out the genome, but we still don't know what every change, like if every change in the genome is gonna be clinically significant. We're still building um, a lot of that knowledge. So sometimes we find a variant or a mutation in someone and we know it's there, like it's not a false positive or anything like that but we don't have enough data, enough information about about the clinical significance of that particular variant. We don't know if this is something that would put that patient at an increased risk of something, or we don't know if it's benign and, you know, nothing to worry about because we all have benign variants, you know, in us. Um, It's it's normal, it's common. Um, So just because a variant is there doesn't mean that it's gonna be clinically significant automatically. So that's a big one <laughs> that I think is um, you know, important for patients to understand is you might find out information, but the lab and your provider may not be able to fully tell you what it means yet. And it may, might take time to really resolve the uncertainty of um, that variant. So those are some big considerations. Another one is, um, you know, simply economic. So, um, you know, I I'm, don't, 
fully know how things work in Canada and how things are covered for these services in Canada. So I apologize for my ignorance there, but I'm located in the States. <laughs> so, um, you know, we um, have our very imperfect healthcare system. And like I said, like identifying a genetic cause for a disease, such as a pathogenic variant can open doors for patients for getting things covered. However, things depending on the, that particular patient's insurance may not be 100% covered. So for example, you know, they might be offered certain screenings or services and their healthcare team, you know, feels they're necessary, but if that service isn't 100% covered, you know, that might still be a barrier to that patient. I think it's also important to note, which you kind of talked about how, you know, what it can mean for the person, but I think it's also really vital to keep in mind that genetic testing doesn't always just affect one person. Mm -hmm. There are implications for the whole family, really. Yep. Yep. There's genetics is a family affair. (laughs) For, for sure. So that's another consideration that that's great that you brought up, Emma, um, that, you know, um, you might have to get certain relatives involved. You know, sometimes it's useful. It's more helpful. The information is more helpful Mm -hmm. if multiple family members test. Um, So you you might want to consider like, you know, having those conversations, thinking about how that might go with your family. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So Last thing to ask you, what's the difference between me as an average person going and doing something like 23andMe mm-hmm. versus going to a genetic counselor and finding out specific tests and panels to do and what sort of information are each of those going to provide? Oh, that is a loaded question. <laughs> so 23andMe is what we call um, direct to consumer DTC testing. And what that is, is like, you can just go online on Google, click order a kit and, and get a kit. And then in, you know, however long you get results that tell you something about your genetics. One big difference is that 23andMe um, is not considered medical grade. And therefore, if you you know, take results from a medical grade test to your doctor and you request um, something to be done based on the, that test, your doctor would be allowed to intervene in, in whatever way um, that makes sense. Um, however, if you were to take like 23andMe results um, to your doctor, they would say, we can't do anything about this until we confirm it with a medical grade test. So that's the big thing is that, um, you know, the when you have those certifications and your medical grade and you do validation studies to, you know, say your product is um, as good as you say it is, um, that is quite different than just like a test that anybody can order online um, at any time, you know? So 23andMe is kind of like maybe an interesting way to dip your toe in the water, but if you want actual clinically relevant information, that's when you would seek out genetic counseling. Yeah, exactly. So if you're actually going to, you know, plan to do something with that information, um, that's, that's probably when a genetic counselor should, should, um, if possible again. Um, but that's probably when a genetic counselor should be, um, involved. If you just want to have fun and you're just like, you know, I just kind of want to know, I'm just curious, like I, I'm just doing this for fun, then fine, you know, um, but, 
again, sometimes opening, uh, you might be opening a can, can of worms, but that's, it's your information at the end of the day. It's your right to know if you want to. Wow. This has been so helpful. Thank you so much for clarifying some of these things for us. Yeah. So Brittany, thank you so much for joining us. And it was really awesome to get your insight and to hear all of your knowledge about genetics and genetic counseling. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. I hope you guys had fun too. Well, thank you so much for rounding up the season with us. We hope you all have a happy holiday season, whatever that means for you. And we'll be back in the new year. Yes, you'll hear us again come January, 2022. And I also want to say thank you to our listeners. We really appreciate it. And thank you to you, Emma. This has been a fun way to round out 20 episodes and we could not be more deserving of a little break. Thanks, Hill. It's been a pleasure doing this with you and I can't wait to see what we do next season. All right. See you on the real world, not through a podcast mic. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you want to support our show, you can subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe even give us a rating and leave us a comment. Probably Not Lupus is written, recorded, edited, and produced by us alone, still in our bedrooms. If you want to chat with us, you can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Gmail at probably not lupus.